We are uh, we're back for another week of the Between Two Pines podcast with your lovely hosts, myself, Austin, and my lovely co-host, Zach. Want to say hi? Hey. Uh, and then this week we are also, uh, uh, you know, we got some things lined up this week. Um, we are going to have an interview this week with a woman by the name of Bridget, who is going to give us some insight on uh, zoology, uh, what she does as a zookeeper and as a veterinary student. And uh, she does a lot of wildlife rehabilitation. So this week we're going to pick her brain about all of that. Uh, but we also have our, uh, our standard setup. We're going to go over some news articles. We will talk to Bridget about her her background and her work in the uh, you know in zoology, and then uh, we'll go over hot beer and, or excuse me hot gear cold beer. So uh, Zach, first and foremost, uh, what'd you do this week in the outdoors? Anything fun and exciting? This weekend, oh boy, this weekend was. Uh awful we got (laughs) like we got like four straight days of rain um i i did almost nothing outside because of all the rain we got probably six or so inches in a couple days and then on the last day it got below freezing so it turned everything to sheet ice um and then the weather's just been crazy because then yesterday it was like 62 degrees as a high. And then this weekend it's going to be like 14 degrees. So oh, I don't know if it's the mountain ranges or the kind of mountain ranges or just living kind of halfway between the South and the Midwest or what, but it's been terrible. But I think the Wednesday or Thursday before this last weekend, me and a buddy, Went on a little bit of a goose shoot, and we shot our two-man limit of geese. Um, so that's six Canadas down here. And uh, it was just a fun little shoot. We were able to put a good sneak on them. It was just a little local flock. And I tell you, those six birds breasted out. Probably got I probably got as much meat out of that as I did out of a small deer. <laughs> really? Did those some thick, thick geese down there? Yeah, I mean they didn't. They they've lived there for most of the year, so they're just they're fat, fat and happy, <laughs> fattening up. Uh, uh, you know, a quick demise. Were you field hunting, or were you? Uh, I mean, how were you doing? Were you on the water? Uh, they were just loafing around on this one pond, and it was kind of the road kind of ramped up to the or there's the road was below the pond, so we were able to kind of just sneak up and jump shoot them. Oh, okay. They really bad. don't leave that property, so I mean, field hunting is kind of kind of not work out too well there. But um, you know, if you if one guy spooked them, they just go to the other ponds that are on that same property. So um, we might try that sooner or later, just bouncing them around. Yeah, it's not a bad idea. Well, it's good. You got. I mean, you're still putting meat in the freezer. That's good. Yeah, and I don't know. Did you want to do the recipe stuff at the end too? Yeah, yeah, we'll talk about some recipes at the end here. Because I got a good one that we did with the geese, so. All right, perfect. Yeah, we'll we'll throw some recipes in for the for all you at the end here. We could go over some good stuff. Um, yeah, so you you shot some geese. You do anything indoors? Getting getting stuff prepped. Uh, I've been stretching and 
drying out some raccoon pelts. I'm going to get to tanning them soon. Um, I changed the oil in my ice fishing auger. Um, and yeah, I don't know, just kind of getting some trap stuff, trapping stuff ready to the final push at the end of the season. Yeah, but, for uh, sure. Other than that, not a whole heck of a lot. Grocery so, shopping and <laughs> pretty regular, slow weekend. Regular stuff, yeah. Yeah, well, hey, you gotta you gotta do what you gotta do. Yeah, but anyway, what about you? Um, so this weekend uh, I got out. I did some rabbit hunting uh, with a good uh, buddy of ours. Um, so yeah, we went out. We took his beagle out. We uh, tried to drive some rabbits. Um, unfortunately, we didn't see that many. We saw two uh, two cottontails. Um, we were hunting a, a fence line, um, and unfortunately, uh, when they when they ran the fence line, both the rabbits that we saw they darted immediately into a yard, which we were just kind of pushing pushing the rabbits, seeing if we could see anything, and uh, we were well inside of the, uh, or I guess you would say we were in the within three hundred feet of an occupied structure, so we definitely couldn't uh, take a shot at them. Uh, but we did see some of the dog ran pretty well. Um, but yeah, it was fun just to get out there. I mean, it was, uh, fairly warm out this weekend. So we're like, okay, you know, it's like, you know, 35, 40 degrees. We're like, okay, we'll get out. Um, did that. Um, then this, uh, this week I've been working the hell out of my snowmobile. Finally got it running again. Got it running. I hopefully somewhat well I don't know we'll see <laughs> it's junker sled weekend who gives a crap as long as I finish the race I don't care just um, gun it and run it just I'm gonna beat that thing into the ground it's gonna oh gosh that thing's gonna be a mess um but uh yeah I was hoping to go up north uh, this weekend for snowmobiling but I don't think that's gonna happen so might be heading down to Chicago um I don't know we'll see we'll see what uh see what happens this weekend but yeah actually oh that's another thing that i did is uh i actually made a whole mess of uh spinner baits uh some french oh, nice. spinners yeah so i've been taking a bunch of squirrel tails that i got and some deer tails and some other stuff and making some french spinners um and i want to get into i've been trying to do it i got to get some more components but uh i'm gonna start tying some flies as well so Ooh, nice. I, I mean, on these lazy days, I'm not doing much else besides, you know, once I'm done with uh, grad school work, it's just farting around. So I might as well make some use of the time. Yeah, I saw, I've seen some awesome videos of guys. They just cut some hair off of a roadkill deer on their way to a fishing spot. And then they tie flies in the ice shanty and they just hammer the crappies right then and there. Really? Just like hair jigs and stuff under the ice. So, yeah, oh yeah. It's pretty pretty good thing to to try out. I, they work like magnets in some spots I've seen. Well, I'll tell you, my biggest thing is is I cannot, uh, I I don't have it in myself to pay, uh, you know, seven bucks now for a maps for those yeah. French spinners. Now I cannot get myself to do it. I'm like every cast if I snag a tree, I'm like, oh lord, there's um, damn near ten bucks hanging from that branch. And you those know, things so, basically work as algae rakes too. Once you get yeah. into thick stuff, yeah, exactly. So uh, you know, I can make them. I bought all the parts from uh, you know a company called Worthco right here in Whiting, Wisconsin. 
I bought all the parts, you know, I got enough to make a couple hundred spinners for like 30 bucks. I mean, yeah. I bought, I bought all these components three years ago and I still haven't run out of parts. I mean, I got a couple hundred blades, a couple hundred bearings, all the, you know, the bodies on them. And it was like 40 bucks for everything. And so you just dress them, you take the time. It takes me about, you know, five, five to 10 minutes to make one spinner. Well, I'm just sitting watching TV. Like, why not? Yeah, good deal. Yeah, exactly. going back to uh, what you were saying about rabbit hunting is with our buddy. I was t- I'm trying to talk to him and convince him. And if you wanted to, too, um, obviously come on down as well. But we have quite a few swamp rabbits around that I would really like to get one at least. And what's the difference between a swamp rabbit and like a cottontail? Swamp rabbits look exactly like a cottontail, but they're five, six pounds. Oh, that's a meaty. Those are some thick boys. <laughs> yeah. And, and they two swim. C's. Yeah. What? Oh. <laughs> that's kind of terrifying a little bit. Yeah, just they'll remind- paddle across <laughs> rivers and creeks and swamps and all of it. Jeez. Yeah, that's a, that's a little terrifying. Oh, yeah. But- that's when you're going to get that, uh, like the, the beaver attack we talked about a few episodes ago. You're going to get the same thing with the rabbit. Yeah. <laughs> Things going to come out and maul you. Oh, it's gosh, adorable it. until it's latched on to your, <laughs> your trachea. <laughs> oh, Jesus Christ. Yeah, that would be terrifying. But, uh, yeah, I mean, that's, that's uh, yeah, I think that's all I got for this weekend. But since we're we're on the topic of wildlife, uh, beautiful segue there. You like that? Um, I do. Um, you know, I think we could cut into some of these news articles. Uh, Zach, I sent you this article earlier this week, which I, I realized that this is actually an older article, but it's coming back out uh, from 2020. Because I see this is from, there's articles from 2016, but this has just kind of come back around. Um, so it's this, it's this tortoise named... Diego, Diego, <laughs> Diego, the the sexy playboy tortoise. Um, this this tortoise, this lucky fella, is the patriarch of around forty percent of his population. He just mounted up and saved. You know, he did what any good uh, a member of his species would do, and just bred his way to the top and saved his entire species. Yeah, he's he's the he's the Genghis Khan of tortoises, <laughs> minus murdering millions of people. Well, this guy, and I love the picture on here. He is happy as a clam. This guy, he just I you know, and they don't give the numbers. So at one point there was just two males and twelve females on this island, and then the the San Diego Zoo uh, took him and started a breeding program, and he just banged it out to over two thousand population now yeah everybody's got a little diego in them <laughs> every tortoise you got, a little, you got a little diego in you no would you would you like some <laughs> yeah that's uh every tortoise so you know big up to diego he's really um you know the only concern that i have is that you are uh that gene pool is going to be slim at best yeah that's uh Hopefully they don't get any uh, common colds or anything because they will not be able to withstand much. Yeah, once they get, uh, you know, like feline AIDS, once they get uh, reptile AIDS, that whole, oh, they're doomed. 
that whole thing is uh, to wipe out that whole thing. Yeah. But, <laughs> well, good, good for know, Diego. I'm happy for him. I'm happy for him. I'm happy for the species. I'm happy for uh, you know uh, the the tortoises on Espanola. They're they're doing great, and and Diego's a, a happy fella. Uh, Zach, you want to bring us into this next one? Uh, yeah. So, uh, everybody knows recently the uh, Australian wildfires have been pretty devastating um i think i read numbers upwards of half a billion i think animals have been killed from it which i really don't know how they get those numbers but um you know tragic there's to, the, there's just the one least. there's just one unlucky fella that <laughs> walk around i lost <laughs> count at 500 million <laughs> He's been out there since uh, 1996. He's still <laughs> taking counts. He's just adding them up. But, uh, yeah, so basically the Irwins, uh, um, descendants, the descendants of Steve, yeah. The, the um, what's her name? Bindi. Bindi and the daughter and then the son, I believe, right? Um, yes. So Bindi's the son, and I or Bindi is the daughter, and I forget what the son's name is, but yeah, both are big. Uh, you know, have really carried on his legacy well. Uh, R.I.P. Steve Irwin, a top five hero of mine. Um, but yeah, they're they're carrying it on, and it seems like um, uh, the Australia Zoo is still uh, hustling and bustling, and you know, as good as ever. So it's it's great to see. But um, yeah, if you want to cut back to the article there. Yeah, so basically they're doing uh, rehab stuff in a secure facility that they have for a lot of the wildlife, and they have numbers upwards of 90,000 animals so far that they're trying to rehabilitate. Yeah, it's that's that's an astronomical number. That is that is absolutely in insane to me. You figure, uh, you know, since what are these wildfires been going for about two months now? Let's let's say three months. So that's about 90 days. So they're doing a thousand animals a day, essentially, that they're treating. Yeah, that's a, that's a big investment in time and resources. And I, I did rehab for a summer. And I mean, I it's a lot of work taking care of, you know, a couple of robins and a couple <laughs> of swallows and, you know, a possum and a raccoon. So I can't imagine what they're going through. I'm sure there's a lot of sleepless nights and just, uh, tired folks but you know if you're able to release them i mean that site right there makes it all worth it oh absolutely and actually touching on this which um i've uh, i've i read some other articles related to this and i'm sure people have seen some other videos of people rescuing these koalas giving them water one apparently um giving these koalas water out of a water bottle improperly can actually uh, drown them um, so be cautious of that. If you're in Australia, um, look up how to actually properly give a, a koala water. And then two people are trying to put them in their cars and then the koalas are attacking them to like really mauling them. <laughs> so, <laughs> they kind of, they deserve that at that point. Don't well, put, don't trying- put wild stuff in your cars. Yes. Or at least in the passenger compartment, I should say where they can get at you so yeah just be careful i mean big ups you know i respect people trying to uh, save the wildlife but just use caution don't put a 
uh, uh, a very scared koala with big <laughs> claws and teeth in your car that is freaking out already and uh, expect it not to maul your face. Yeah. You but, imagine something yeah. 10 times your size picking you up and throwing you into this little <laughs> compartment and then you're just all of a sudden moving at 70 miles an hour. <laughs> yeah, you're going to be a little little ornery uh, to say the least. I would beat but... some ass if that happened to me. <laughs> um yeah oh yeah you and i so, both so what happens with the koalas do they just they just don't naturally drink that much water at that amount of or that rate or how are they drowning um i uh i don't know uh it's i i was just reading about is there's like a proper way to uh uh to actually feed it you know to give them water is it just um, too much volume going into them at once, maybe? I, I get, yeah. So um, here, I have the article right here that bottle feeding the koalas. Uh, so it can be dangerous to give koalas water poured into their mouth as they are not usually used to drinking at a volume such as 10 to 20 milliliters can be aspirated, meaning it will go into the lungs. And so they'll basically dry drowned if, uh, um. if people are familiar with that uh, medical term. So um yeah so just use caution so just give them a little dabble do and then uh yeah they should be good to go so don't just uh you know force it down their throat uh they'll just take a little dabble do i mean they're not very big creatures so yeah i know for us like i mean it's way different but we did like you know robins and songbirds and stuff like that soaking their food in water gives them a lot of the necessary uh, water requirements that they need because they're, you know, a couple grams in weight. So just they pick up a lot of that moisture just from their food as well. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I, I figure koalas are probably something like that. They're eating eucalyptus most of the time, so I'm assuming they get a substantial amount of their fluids from that. Um, but yeah, so just just be careful. You're in Australia and you're, you're bottle feeding koalas. Just, just give them a little bit at a time. They'll, they'll be all right. Um, but yeah, speaking of uh, ornery animals, Zach, um, you and I are both from a urban area, and there's often coyotes that uh, can get in uh, uh, can get in a little scraps with you know your your pets at home, and uh, often it is the coyotes that come out on top. But there's this video that was posted by the uh, the Washington Post here about this cat who. Um, he was he was not feeling it. He was not feeling uh, getting attacked by coyotes. No, it's a uh, it's your classic uh, drunk girl in a bar that gets kind of surrounded by a couple of <laughs> drunk guys, but then the drunk girl actually knows Taekwondo and <laughs> comes out with in a pile of rubble with guys on the ground. Yeah, uh, this house cat and I didn't. Uh, oh, the oh the the cat's name is Max. For Max Fury. <laughs> this, thing, uh, this cat, yeah, three coyotes in L.A. surround this thing. And this cat just went bonkers. It, like, clawed the one in the face. The one jumped over, a, like, a, a guardrail and, like, flew into some bushes. Uh, the coyote. And then it just was clawing the other one's faces, too. And the coyotes were shook. They were yeah. shook it. I didn't know, like, I mean, how typical do you think this is, Zach, of uh, of a, a standard uh, house animal actually taking a, a wild animal like this? Uh, I'd say odds were definitely stacked against this cat. Yeah. I'd, I mean, I'd he, say I would put money on the coyote if it was one coyote. 
you know, one coyote versus a cat, I would pick the coyote every day. And three, I'd think it was game over. But this cat was absolutely <laughs> boss. <laughs> Threw on its gangster shades and just started going ham. Yeah, it was insane. Yeah, well, uh, hopefully we can post this video up for everyone to see it. But yeah, it's, uh, it was bonkers. I was like, oh my gosh. What state was this? Was this in California? Yeah, this was L.A. L.A., which those coyotes in L.A., I've seen plenty of videos of them just walking around with cats in their mouth. So they they know what they're doing for sure. Just, I need to say it. I'm going to say it. Um, California banned all fur trapping in the state. And this is what's going to happen is more and more coyotes are going to come into that human interface because there's not people that are trapping them. So... You know, just another reason why fur trapping and predator management is a big deal. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it's states like California. I mean, they, they definitely have some restricted laws on hunting as far as I know, which anyone from California, please chime in and, you know, give us some insight into this. But, yeah, it's it, this is what happens. This is just like anywhere. When you, when you don't allow the hunting of, like you said, these predatory animals or if they're mismanaged, this is what you're going to get. But, um, actually, I think it would be really interesting – uh, maybe one of these episodes, we'll do an entire episode on coyotes. I think that would be a really interesting topic and just, uh, you know, how adaptable these animals are. But Oh, um, yeah, they're amazing. Yeah, but uh, on this topic of uh, not only the coyotes, but the cats, Zach, I've run into when I was uh, nuisance trapping, so not for fur, but just uh, trapping skunks in my suburban backyard in, in, uh, in Illinois, um, is accidentally trapping in a cage trap so any animal rights activist was a cage trap for skunks so my dog kept getting sprayed um but accidentally caught a feral cat and jesus christ have mercy on my soul the thing was voracious and i would have not want to caught any other animal like that would be my least wanted catch animal i take a raccoon a skunk you know, anything besides a feral cat. They are vicious. And, oh, they uh, are absolutely ruthless. They look at you like prey. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They're little miniature mountain lions. That's yeah. literally what they are. They are evil creatures. Um, but yeah, Zach, I wanted to ask you, I mean, is there any animal that you could think of that you would want to catch less than a feral cat where you had to, uh, you know, release? And I know you've worked in... Um, animal rehab and entrapping so i'm sure you've kind of seen both is there any animal you'd want to catch less than a feral cat do i have to release it you have to release it yeah so this would be like a cage trap boy i i don't think so i i've caught i've released my fair share of possums because i don't use them for anything so i just let them go um same with skunks, but I mean, I hate messing with skunks, especially if you got a trap just around a corner and you turn the corner and you see a skunk, you're like, holy crap. <laughs> you know, it's, but uh, people th- don't realize- they're easily to manage because you just put them in a darker area and they don't spray. Well, not only that, but I think people fail to realize is once they squirt, they're out. They're one and done. It takes, they have some recoup time. So if they squirt, you're, you're pretty good for a bit. Right, unless they don't use all of it. Yeah, which, yeah, I mean, you're running that risk, but most of the time the second one's like a, you know, it's like a a wet fart, more or less. Yeah, and it it burns your nostrils. 
It really gets it stings the sinuses. Side story: I just ordered uh, a couple weeks ago. I ordered some skunk essence as like a big, like they call it a long call lure. So just to get everything around attention when you're trapping. Yeah, yeah, we talked about that last week. Yeah. Did I, I did yeah. I mention how Tracy brought it in the house and I walked in and I knew I got it before I even <laughs> saw the package? No, so it was that it was that pungent even in the packaging. It was sealed in a box, wrapped up in paper, sealed in a glass jar, wrapped up in like tape and wrap and everything. And my whole place stunk. <laughs> uh, it sucks to be that delivery driver. Oh yeah. I'm <laughs> I've heard <laughs> review or I've seen like people just have their stuff like thrown onto their place because the post the post office guy is so pissed off or or they say i'm not putting that in my truck so they just say like come pick it up if you want it jesus but uh yeah so anyway um you know i'd say a cat is probably the most ferocious thing in the world Um, yes there's videos of guys just putting there's a video of a guy just putting his hat over a coyote and he gets to pick it up. As soon as you get that back nape of a coyote's neck, they just go limp. Like you can treat them as if they were just a regular dog at that point. As long as you pick them up from that nape, they pretty much just give up. But cats will fight tooth and nail until there's nothing left. Oh, yes. till you're done. They they yeah. don't they don't want to escape. They want you to suffer for your sins. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, that's uh, that's yeah. The, but big ups to Max the cat, Max Fury fought off three coyotes. It was magical. Big ups to Max, and I hope he got a big tuna fish dinner from his owners. Yeah, and California reopened fur trapping. Uh, yes, you heard it here first. Um. okay so this week we have for your interview we have bridget uh she's on she's a professional in uh i would say the veterinarian slash zookeeping realm and uh we're going to talk to her about some general background things what she does and the day-to-day operations of a zookeeper and uh some maybe some fun facts about zoos um but bridget could you start off by just telling us what you do, general background, uh, and, and how you got to where, where you currently are? Yeah, so right now uh, I am a vet student at Michigan State University, and I'm about halfway through my third year. Um, so every school is a little bit different. Some schools would still have students in the classroom during this part of their third year, but Michigan State sends us into the clinics a little bit earlier. Um, it really helps with getting us more hands-on experience. So I'm working in hospitals every day now. Um, every three weeks, I, spit, I switch specialties. So right now I'm doing primary care, which is dogs and cats, like the normal general practice veterinarian that you would take your pet to. Um, and then in a couple weeks, I get to head out to a safari park uh, where I'll be for six weeks. So I get to do some pretty cool stuff coming up, which I'm really excited about. Um, I first got into kind of the zoo wildlife exotics realm um, in kindergarten. I started zoo school in Madison at Henry Vilas Zoo, which is my favorite zoo on the planet. And I haven't turned back since. And people keep telling me I might change my mind. And I just haven't. So here I am working at it. Um, In a year and a half, I will have my DVM and hopefully be continuing to pursue zoo medicine as a career field. 
Um, but right now I'm just trucking through school and trying to get that done. Okay, cool. So, and, um, so with that, so for vet school, are you doing like research or anything like that? Or is this mostly hands-on actual technical learning that you're doing? Yeah. So it depends on what you want to do. Um, if you're going into like general dog and cat stuff, you don't necessarily need to have a bunch of publications and a bunch of research because um, there are people like most of the research that occurs in vet med in general occurs in dog. Um, just because that's what we know the most about and that's what we have the most of. So that makes that pretty easy. Um, but going into zoo medicine specifically or wildlife medicine or really any specialty, you really have to do research. Um, it's a really big part of the job, especially in zoos. Um, there are five pillars that make up kind of like the concept of AZA facilities, which are what I prefer to work with. Um, there are some good facilities that aren't AZA. I've just had the most experience with AZA facilities. And, um, and I don't mean to interrupt, but could you explain yeah. what AZA is? Yeah, I was just about to <laughs> say that. Um, AZA is the Aquarium and Zoo Association, and it's kind of like the, it's the gold standard for captive animal care in America. So if you go to an AZA facility, these facilities have to keep up with a really rigorous care schedule. Um, they have to be keeping all of their care, cleaning, enrichment, everything that has to do with the animals, including research, including like education of the public and things like that. It has to be held to a really high standard. And that high standard is supported with lots of research and lots of experience from zoo professionals around the country. Um, so those are kind of your like the best zoos. Um, and so can you name a few of those? Like what are some yes. of those like top so, pristine ones? Yeah. Any like big zoo in the country is going to be AZA. So San Diego zoo is a huge, that's like one of the best zoos in the country. They are AZA. Henry Bylas zoo in Madison is AZA. Um, there are two zoos I work with over in Michigan. There's Binder Park Zoo in Battle Creek and Potter Park Zoo in Lansing, Michigan. Those are both AZA. Um, so really, it it really varies with the size of zoos that are AZA accredited, but they are all held to the same standards, which is really cool. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. cool. Well, um, so for and you know you're in school and so what is and and i know you said that you're currently going to michigan state and you kind of gave us some insight what is the typical path to and i would say you're you're, you want to go into zoo medicine correct yes so what is like the the best path if you were maybe someone's an undergraduate looking to go into the same field what is like the laser beam straightest approach that you could go to get into this yeah. So, um, like I said before, a really big part of it is research and getting hands-on experience, doing research and reading research papers, because a lot of what you do as a zoo vet is either conducting research or reading other people's research, because we don't know a whole lot. Um, it's hard to work on a different species every single day because each of those species is different. So being able to Go dive into the literature um, really helps you out every day. So definitely getting some research experience under your belt, trying to get as much hands-on experience with animals as you can, even if it's just cats and dogs, because you can't be a good zoo vet if you're not a good vet. And to be a good vet, you have to know how to take care of our four big basic species, which are dogs, cats, cows, and horses. Um, So learning those and getting hands-on experience with those species is like step number one um, for any vet med field ever. 
And then after that, you can go off into your specialty, but you really have to focus on that first, which is what being in vet school forces you to focus on. So that's helpful. Um, And then other than that, just trying to get into different zoo facilities and wildlife facilities and watching how they function and making sure that you know what the job is going to be like. Because it's a really common misconception to think that zoo vets get to walk around and like dart animals every single day and like get to go play with baby tigers, which like maybe every couple of years you get to do something super cool with an exotic baby animal. Um, But most of your day is spent like coming up with management plans and reading research and doing research um, and helping to educate yourself and other vets in the country with some of the cases that you have. So what you mentioned the research, is there any uh, specific research, any specific research that you've done that you could touch on? Yeah. So in undergrad, I was involved in a couple projects. Um, A lot of them had to do with poop, a big part (laughs) of the job. poop. Um, So I was looking at parasite load in like urban versus um, while, uh, urban versus rural species and looking at kind of population and how that ca- factors into parasite uh, conduction through a population. Um, and right now I can't talk about it too much because we're getting ready to submit for publication. Um, but I'm working on a project right now in a zoo species looking at validating um, a hormone assay that was first developed for dogs. And um, it's hard with uh, certain assays, which is like a test you would run mm-hmm. um, to measure something. So for this assay, we're measuring a hormone in the blood. And just because it works in dogs doesn't mean that it's going to work in every other mammal because every single mammal species is so different. Um, so you have to run a validation study and make sure that it's measuring things the way that it should. And ideally, we could do that for every single species we take care of. Unfortunately, a lot of the times you have to kind of make assumptions and make leaps and bounds about certain things. Um, And that's what we call using something off label. Um, So like a lot of the drugs that we use are labeled for dogs or cats and we use them in like an anteater. And so we're using that drug off label. We're just using our best scientific guesses and reading papers on how that drug acts in other species to try to make that informed decision. Hmm. But unfortunately, we don't have studies on every drug for every animal. That would be great, but so you that could is find, not something. <laughs> so you could find like a, you know, maybe a med that works for, I don't know, like heartworms and dogs could potentially work in, I don't know, like a, you know, a, a, a fox or something like that. I don't know. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's, yeah. yeah, that's super interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, well, uh, one of my, my questions is, and we've talked kind of more of the technical aspects of the job. What is, you know, we've all been to the zoos. We've all seen the the zookeepers, which I do have to ask if you're out there and I know you're not a zookeeper, but when mm-hmm. you're working in a role with the animal, do you wear all khaki? That's a requirement. That's why you always wear khaki when you go to a zoo because they start acting up because they think you're going to feed them. Yeah. <laughs> oh, well, damn. I'm going to have to, I never thought about that. I'll That's a hot my, tip. I'll yeah. wear, I'll wear yeah. my ranger uniform to, to Brookfield too next time I go. <laughs> yeah. Um, so it, it depends on the zoo. Every zoo is a little bit different. When I was a zookeeping intern, I did wear all khaki because that was the zoo uniform. <laughs> let me tell you, I rocked it. I have never felt better about an outfit in my life. Um, it shows poop really well, too. <laughs> yeah. It really does. It highlights 
all of the spectrums of poop. Well, <laughs> and and as someone that did have to wear khaki for uh, you know a few years, an extended straight, period of time <laughs> for extended periods of time working with animals and poop, yeah. they, you really gotta love how much it breathes too, because all oh of them God. are just so breathe really seals in the flavor of the, the airflow is phenomenal. <laughs> like when you take the khaki off, it's penetrated onto your skin. Oh yeah, it's it's all part of it. Yeah, absolutely. Exactly. So you, everyone, you walk into like the bar after work and everybody knows that yeah. you're well i think that should be your next study is to see if you could get uh you know if you put animals in khaki <laughs> it's a good way to apply a topical solution is just have them wear a khaki cover honestly <laughs> it's it's true wicks it right up yeah Perfect. that's good stuff it's right good there stuff. you can cite me on that i'll be at i'll be at l on that research. Co-author. We're good. Co-author. yeah there we go um but no on, on a, a legitimately though what yeah, is it? Yeah. What does a day look like for uh, you know someone working in a zoo? And I know have you, you've worked as a zookeeper, correct? As well. Yeah, I was I was an intern for the most part, but yeah, we did a lot of the um, same things with the zookeepers, just with different animals. So a lot. It's it's a really wide mix of things. Um, some people think that all you get to do all day is like cuddle polar bears, which is a terrible idea, or like all you do all day is like scoop poop, which. In, you do have to do well you don't cuddle the polar bears you do interact with the animals every day and you do have to clean up after them but it's so many other things too uh, even like like I said a big part of zoo life is doing research and seeing who found what works best for which animal so a lot of times zookeepers come in in the morning and they do like a w- quick run through just to make sure everybody looks okay nobody's gotten sick overnight nobody's cages have opened up magically or something like that um which is even if that did happen all of the zoos have different rules about how many doors and locks have to be between an animal and the outside world so a lot of times when if a cage were to break open or something like some people get worried if um like sometimes trees fall you know on fences and break fences down overnight that's something that a zookeeper would go in and look for right away. Mm-hmm. You do a run through of your entire area that you're in for that day. Make sure all the animals look okay. Make sure all the cages look okay. And then generally you start by giving everybody their first meal and moving them out of wherever they were overnight. Um, and then after that, generally you do a bunch of cleaning, kind of get everybody ready to come in at the end of the day. If you have to hose an exhibit or an enclosure, you hose it in the morning, so that by the afternoon it's dry. There's like a lot of mechanics into how zookeepers plan their day and the order that they do things in. And it's really, really cool to watch them kind of move around their area for the day. And if you ask them why they would hose pen A before pen B, they'll give you like the entire detailed reason of why. They really think hard about their entire day because they have so much to fit in that they're really good at their time management and their planning. And that's something that's really cool about all the zookeepers I've worked with. Um, and then after you do all your cleaning and you, or you feed everybody, you have to make all of the diets, which zookeepers play a huge part in. They're always looking at diet changes and diet recommendations and making sure that the mix of things that they're giving to their animals makes sense. And that's where zoo vets come in and play a part in that, too, because they're helping. But the zookeepers really play a big role. If they're noticing that an animal is looking chunkier than usual or isn't eating certain things, Um, or just isn't quite acting right, the first person who's going to notice that animal isn't doing well is the zookeepers. They see it every day. They're in charge of everything that animal comes into contact with. So they're like your biggest, best point of contact as a zoo vet. They rock. Um, But then after that, you cut up your diets. 
um, if the animal is within any like behavioral training program, um, which a lot of them are, you can go train them. That's a big part of the day as well. Um, and a lot of the behaviors that animals and zoos are taught are actually for their own husbandry. So whether it's getting them to move like through a doorway from one pen to the other pen so that you can clean it while they're in there or like having them blood draw trained or something like that, little things like that. And that's where keepers get to spend the most times with their animals. Um, they get to really interact with them and build a bond with them. And that's really cool. And then after that, usually it's just feeding and putting everybody back away for the night. Okay. And when, and when you say, well, I, I have a couple questions from yeah, that. Yeah. Um, and Zach, if you have any questions here, please absolutely chime in here. Um, but um, so when you say check the animals, are you like going into the pens or is this just from outside the walls and kind of, you know, maybe with a pair of binoculars? I mean, when you say check the animals, is there yes. like things you're mm-hmm. looking for? I know you mentioned weight or something like that. Or how, how do you do that? Yeah. So it depends on the animal. Um, if it's like if you have like an aviary full of birds, you can walk through the aviary and make sure everybody looks OK. And so that would be like going in and being with an animal, which is what we would call unprotected contact. That just means that you're in the same space as the animal. There are some animals that you do not want to be in the same space as, like a lion. Um, and those animals, you would go down and be what, within, within what we call protected contact. So there's a fence or glass between you and that animal. Um, so when keepers would go to check on their animals in the morning, um, if it's just a really quick right away thing, they would go in, make sure everybody looks normal. Um, everybody, if they had food overnight, that they ate food overnight, that there's no blood on the floor, all the poop looks normal. Just little things like that where they're just kind of walking through and giving them a once over and making sure there's no big emergencies. When they do the behavioral care and the behavioral training in the afternoon, that's really where like little things start to become apparent to them a lot of the time. So they'll notice that this animal is only chewing on the left side of its mouth versus chewing all over the place like there's little things that they'll pick up on like that these keepers pay really close attention to their animals a lot of them which is really really cool yeah that's really yeah that's amazing with even stuff like you were talking with just the chewing yeah that's astounding that they'd be able to you know notice something like that Mm -hmm. yeah that's that's another good uh kind of segue to what we talk about about getting into it because when i were i worked rehab as a volunteer for a summer Mm -hmm. And I mean, it's kind of that same deal where you get to know these animals and you get to learn their, uh, you know, what they do and their routines and stuff. And then you're constantly mm-hmm. doing weights and diets and stuff. Like, I don't yeah. know how many rat frozen rats I've cut in half with scissors, <laughs> but you know, just stuff like that. I think that'd be a good stepping stone to, if you really yeah. want to get into it. That's a yeah. great step to uh, start it with. It definitely is. Rehab is, it's, it's interesting going into wildlife rehab because I've done a little bit of it um, both as an undergrad and in vet school. And it depends on who you're working with, but so much of rehab is less about the individual animal that you're working on and more about the population of that animal. Yeah. Right. So a lot of times the big disease outbreaks that, uh, that start in wildlife or move through wildlife or are moving through wildlife populations the rehabbers are the first people to pick up on that. And then all of a sudden you'll start to see it in like the horses and the cows and everyone will be like, where did it come from? And if you were to look at some of the records from surrounding wildlife rehabs, you might find that birds have been dying of this for months and nobody looked for it, you know? 
And yeah. so yeah. even even if you can't save everything that you touch as a wildlife rehabber, because sometimes like that baby bird, like it's just not going to make it. It's a baby bird. You know, they're fragile. But being able to have that resource and have so many eyes watching populations of animals is a huge asset to mm. vet med, to the One Health concept. It's really awesome. And and how how often do you see um, and I'm just curious with especially with the exotics and in the zoo setting. How often is that it'll uh, will a or how often in zoo in the zoological setting um, is it that a disease will jump species either within the zoo or even from, you know, a lion getting some, you know, feline AIDS or something like that, because there's a feral cat running around your, uh, you know, your zoo? Yeah, so. Uh, it's really dependent on the disease and how it's transmitted and the species it's going to, and even the individual that it's going to. Um, so a lot of times the bigger zoos that have a really big keeper staff will try to keep their like keepers in one area for like they're in one area. So if you're taking care of giraffes and like maybe a couple other exotic hoofstock, that's what you're doing for that day. And the cows and the more of the domestic hoofstock, that's a whole different keeper. They don't even cross paths yeah. in that same day. So that if you got a disease in the domestic hoofstock, it doesn't even have a chance to go over. And, to, and, I'm, yeah. oh, and, and I'm sure your, your uh, environmental protocols are super stringent with boot washing and yep. everything like that as well. Yeah, you know. a lot of zoo areas will have foot baths, they're called, um, where you have your you have some chlorhexidine or some other like rescue, some other cleaning disinfectant that you have to step in, in and out of certain areas. Um, and especially like primates, cause we can communicate things with primates, you know? Um, so that's a big area. And that's why like TB testing comes into play when you're working with primates. If you're feeling sick, they ask you to wear a mask at a lot of facilities, like a face mask. So you're not coughing out germs everywhere. So they really do. They try at least the zoos that I've been working with, they do their best whenever there's some sort of disease, illness, whatever, even if they don't know it's infectious yet, they try to treat it like an infectious disease so that in the off chance that it is, they stop it where it is. And they try to kind of keep everybody on strict protocols where if you notice your animal is not feeling well, don't touch that animal and walk straight over and touch another animal mm. that could possibly catch whatever they have. You know, yeah. it, it's something that they definitely watch for and they, they talk about and AZA has guidelines on that as well. Hmm. And, and I'm sure, I mean, uh, I, I know just from seeing what, you know, actual wildlife out in the wild, are the animals that are in enclosures, I mean, are they as keen on it as those out in the wild, uh, you know, when other animals become sick or are near death? And I mean, you'll see with wild animals, you know, the, the ones get left behind or the other animals will stay away from the other animals if they're sickly. Do you see that in the zoo setting as well? That is not something I've experienced with. That is not something I've personally experienced. So I can't really say. Um, I know that a lot of times, sometimes in the like herds of wildebeest and stuff, like you can t definitely tell who's sick and who's not sick because there's like 200 of them. And then one will be over by itself, you know? Yeah. In zoos, the populations are obviously much, much, much smaller. So it might be harder to tell if the like five wildebeest in an exhibit are avoiding one wildebeest because it's sick um, or if it's just because they're not standing next to it. You know, <laughs> yeah, behaviors, yeah. behaviors change when they're in such a 
when they're in a confined space versus how much room they would have to kind of get away from somebody else if they don't want to be near them. Um, so I would say it's not something I've ever heard about or experienced. It's hard to say. Um, but I know a lot of times the keepers will pick up more and the vet staff will pick up more on how an individual is acting different versus how the others are treating it. Um, so it's more of an individual approach in a lot of zoo settings rather than kind of a herd, like a herd approach to watching behaviors and things like that, you know? No, yeah, that makes perfect sense. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Well, kind, no. kind of going back to uh, what you were talking about with uh, research papers and stuff like that. Is yeah. that, is that more uh, research that goes on in other zoos or is that more uh, research for like wild populations that zoos can actually pull like information from? Yeah. So one of the really cool things about the research that happens in zoos is we have a unique opportunity to look at things in some species that we could never look at in the wild. So take rhinos, for instance. Um, There's some really cool studies right now going up on about rhino reproduction and rhino health and how they change throughout their ages in different ways. And those are things that we could not do in the wild. We can't get close enough to them. You would never want to knock them down for as many anesthesias as it would take to get so much blood to do some of these studies. So by having rhinos in zoos that are trained to do a lot of these behaviors or have to be knocked down once a year, every couple of years, whatever, for their checkups um, and get blood drawn anyways, we can take information that we're learning from the animals in captivity and apply that to wild populations. So there are some papers where, like, especially some of the diet things, like we can look at what an elephant or a moose would be eating in the wild and try to apply that to our zoo species to give them as natural of a diet as possible. So it goes both ways. Um, But something I'm really excited about is the opportunities that zoos give us to do research for wild populations of these animals. Yeah. And, well, so now do you see that as... uh... Like, do you see that as any variability at all? I mean, do you think that there's any bit of it that the animal acts differently because it's enclosed? Or is that something that is put on the back burner because they just don't do that? No, that's definitely a consideration. And that's something that I've read over and over again in papers with them saying, like, so these, this is the hormone cycle that we've identified in this animal. And this is the timing of everything. And this is how it works. And artificial insemination definitely work best at this time. This was done in captivity, so we can't say for sure, but it at least gives us a general idea of what we could try in wild species, and hopefully it works because the physiology wouldn't necessarily change that much, but that's, that's definitely one of the limitations of doing studies in zoos and trying to apply them to wild populations, um, which is why we do try to collect as much data from as many zoos as possible. Sure. Yeah. So if you notice that rhinos start humping right when it starts snowing out, you know, that's not too credible. Yeah, we'll just have to bring snow over to Africa and yeah. see if that brings the, brings the populations up, huh? Okay. There, there was one thing, since we're talking about rhino mating, uh, yes. a per- perfect segue here. Yes. So I, I, I wanted to ask, and I've been wanting to ask a zookeeper about this, because I remember um, there was some articles, and this may have been a couple years ago, um, and it was about the uh, panda husbandry program in China and yes. how they have such difficulty getting them to mate and all this stuff, and they were showing mm-hmm. them panda porn. Oh, gosh. <laughs> do, is, is this a, do they do this with other species? And I know you mentioned the husbandry. 
Are yeah. these animals yeah. that are in captivity? Do they just like not? No, I mean, I would think that it would be instinctual, but do you? It seems like with some of these species, you really have to get them moving along with this. Yeah. So, um, every species, depending on where it's from and what its kind of daylight cycle would be, as far as hormones go. And even what kind of breeder they are, like a seasonal breeder, every couple weeks they go into estrus, you know, it's different for every single species. But I would say a lot of it wouldn't be them lacking that instinct to reproduce. It's us being unaware or unable to replicate the cues they get in nature that cause them to show breeding behaviors. Yeah, no, I do. I wonder about that often. And like, when, yeah. you, when you're just mentioning the hormone cycles, I was just thinking, mm-hmm. you know, um, where you are in, in regard, you know, if you're in a zoo in Michigan, I, you know, the, the day length is not going to be the same as, you know, temperature and stuff, different times of the year. And I wonder like the, the circadian rhythms and uh, other things like that. And what a huge effect it must have on the animals that are maybe based uh, in an environment closer to the, you know, the equator where the days yeah. are significantly longer throughout or different times of year. Yeah. And that's something that with the smaller animals, it's like a bird or something. It's easy to put them in an environment where we can mimic their daylight. You know, you put them yeah. in a room and you can make that room as close to their natural environment as possible. As far as day length goes, as far as temperature goes humidity things like that and even like something like a reptile that's pretty i mean it's not easy to reproduce in that setting i could i don't think i could sit down and build like a gaboon viper habitat and have them mating by the next day like that takes an expert on that species in that field to take care of that um and that's again where the zookeepers come in and they look at their natural habitat and what they need to be doing to care for them and they can really help kickstart a lot of that um zookeepers are just incredible if you haven't gotten the point they're superheroes um (laughs) but with something like a rhino or a giraffe that really needs the space to be able to walk around outside you can't just lock them in a room and like put a heat lamp on them and hope for the best you know um it's it's harder to mimic (laughs) (laughs) you just wait to see what happens (laughs) um it's harder to mimic that and that's that's a good question that i don't know a ton about um, I know that some species you can do some like um, you can induce ovulation through hormones and things like that. And that's something that we, we do in cows and like horses, too, for breeding um, domestics that's been applied to some uh, wild species. But I don't know enough about it really to talk in length about it. Um, and that's what's something that's so hard about getting some of these bigger species to breed, you know, like rhinos. Rhinos are really hard to reproduce in captivity. Um, their gestation for black rhinos at least can be 14 to 16 months long. So even if you do, they do get pregnant, it's still a long ways um, till they actually give birth. Um, so that's something that would be a good question for, for a full fledged zoo vet who's done that before, but that's what I know about it. And is a lot of like, would you say the majority of uh, rhino pregnancies are AI then? Uh, it depends on the species. Some rhino species, we have not been successful in AI yet. Um, and again, I'm not, I've worked with black rhinos. Um, so I know more about them than any other species. I know they are slowly, we're slowly starting to learn more about artificial insemination in rhinos and how we have to go about it to be successful. Um, but I do believe right now that natural breeding is the most successful way to breed most species of rhino. 
I think you really? just I think you just need to get a really good looking rhino like from uh, Ace Ventura Pet Detective. <laughs> you know, one of those. Put a put a nice you know put a bunch of pheromones on it. Get it wrapped yeah. up. Yeah, you're, you're good to go. Yeah, um, and uh, figuring out AI for some of those like critically endangered species and even species that are extinct in the wild, close to extinct in the wild, functionally extinct in the wild, something like that. We might have semen samples from them saved somewhere that we could use to use their genes again and to bring them back into that population technically. But until we are really confident with our artificial insemination in that species, we, we need to be pretty careful about who we're breeding. Um, so we don't use it all, you know? Yeah. You only yeah. got a finite number there. Yeah. Um, can, you, and- can you name a few of those that are like, one of the things I think is the coolest thing in the world is like when they think something's extinct and then find some, like what yeah, are they call yeah, it, the yeah. Judas populations? Yeah. Uh, can you name a few that are like functionally extinct or extinct in the wild that you guys are, or that you know that are being worked with? So the biggest one that we all should know is the black-footed ferret, for sure. Yes. Right. Oh, yes. Of course, the black-footed <laughs> ferret. Yes. Yeah. Gangsters of the West. They yeah. really are. Everyone's like, oh, shoot, they're gone. And then somebody's farm dog brought one back. <laughs> plopped it on the ground and everyone was like oh my god what yeah. yeah and then they went out and found like a handful of them and i think there was only like one male who was actually successfully breeding and he brought like, everybody i'm well, pretty sure i'm pretty sure well we actually talked about um and you you weren't able to record with us earlier but yeah, yeah. In, in this episode we actually talked about diego the tortoise did you Diego hear this? The tortoise. I don't think so. Oh, is he the one that like completely like had so much sex he saved his species? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, I have heard. I did not know his name was Diego, but I have heard about him. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, and I, I find some of those interesting. Yeah. <clears throat> especially yeah, when, just little things. Yeah, yeah, when there's a viable male, and obviously just through uh, you know uh, sexual selection, uh, viable males can produce with you know, as many females as they can get their hands on. Yeah. Um, and it, it, that, that is super interesting that you could have, you know, maybe one semen sample that could potentially repopulate an entire species. Yeah. It's great. I mean, that's a huge bottleneck and we would never choose for that. Yeah. Then you get one, one common cold and the whole yeah. thing. Everything's out. <laughs> yeah. So it's, it's <coughs> obviously that's not ideal. You're never going to want to breed every single female in a population to the same male if you have a choice. Um, but if it's that, or extinction, sometimes that's the best choice to make for them. Um, and all the genetics, at least in AZA facilities, are closely controlled and closely regulated by uh, special, uh, sorry, species survival plans, um, or SSPs. And so that's a group of people who sit down and focus on the, the population that we have in AZA facilities and decide where everybody should go where everybody's going to fit who should be reproducing who shouldn't be reproducing who they should reproduce with um so that's another thing that's very closely monitored and very um carefully taken care of in aza facilities to make sure that these populations are staying genetically as healthy as they possibly can even though they are bottlenecked because there's not a ton of them there's not a ton of individuals out there um they they do their best to try to keep them healthy yeah, well, yeah. Uh, playing playing God, kind of, yeah. <laughs> well, well, for the Brid- greater good, <laughs> right, right. Well, Bridget, um, and I know, and me and Zach are both 
highly interested and love nerding out on this stuff. Yes. But um, I do kind of want to switch directions here a little yeah, go bit for it. and talk about y- you personally and, you know, some questions that I'm sure people would love to ask zookeepers or, or zoo vets. Yeah. Um, what is, with you personally, what is your favorite animal to work with in, in a zoo setting? My favorite animal of all time, and everybody who knows me has already answered for me. Ooh, can I guess? Is... Can I guess? Yeah, go for it. Red panda. Oh, God. Yeah. Yep. 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 That's it. Red yes. pandas are stupid cute. They're so cute. They're so cute. Yes. I love every single picture you've ever posted of them. <laughs> there's like only been a little pictures, right? And, no, there's been like 200. Right, yeah. 200. <laughs> yeah. and, and Bridget, if you don't yeah. mind, we'll probably end up posting a picture of you with the red panda on our Instagram if that's okay. Yeah, that's fine. Yeah, yeah. that's fine. But so what, what What do you like about it? So it's just their cuteness or are they, I mean, are they pretty docile little critters? So they are adorable. That is true. Um, but they call a carnivore which is my favorite thing about them. Um, and it's a really weird term because, like, how are you a non-carnivorous carnivore? It doesn't make any sense. But they are built like a dog or a cat. You know, they have they have big canine teeth. They're, you open their mouth, they look like a dog or a cat. On the outside, they, like, look like a weird raccoon thing, you know. Um, they have a shorter digestive tract that looks like it's built to digest proteins. But they spend most of their time eating bamboo so they are technically an herbivore even if they don't um they also have the reason so red pandas and giant pandas are not related but they got their name because the word panda comes from um i don't know what language it is but it comes from a word that means false thumb so red pandas and giant pandas have a modified wrist bone that allows them to grasp things so they can flip their paw over and bend it and it almost works like a thumb it's not a thumb it's a wrist bone um but that's those are probably my two favorite things about them besides them being absolutely adorable and they look really cute and cuddly but they are still a wild animal so docile is not the word i would use they can get pretty sassy when they want to um but they're an animal that keepers can go in and train them and do behavioral work with them um i know a lot of zoos do uh standing ultrasounds with them so they'll build them like a little like stand like a like a little bar out of pvc pipe and then the panda can come up and stand up on it and they'll be given snacks and then a vet or a vet tack or a keeper can ultrasound their stomach um and check for oh. them being pregnant and stuff it's really cute it's <laughs> a little free belly rub yeah exactly so they can be trained and they can be worked with and a lot of them can be really nice but they're not they're not docile like a dog or a cat would be they definitely still act like a wild animal and uh so you have your favorite. You got the red panda, the cutest yeah. little tree critter around. Yes. Although I would say a kinkachu is also pretty cute. And same with tarsiers, oh. as far yes. as little little woodland critters in the trees. Yeah, the oh, tar- yeah. tarsiers are, they're, they look like demons, but they're also super cute. They're uh, so cute. And, and eye eyes. Do you have any eye eyes at your zoo? Well, I've never worked with eye eyes. I would absolutely love to. I think they're so adorable. They Except got, for their, their, their middle hands, finger. Their hands are creeping me out for a minute. Yeah. <laughs> like they're super long middle finger. So uh, they have that middle finger because to they go the around. Or the, is it... they, they tap on the trees and listen for like hollow spots or a spot that would have like a bug in it. And then they have modified teeth that are like kind of pointed in a little bit so that they can bite at the wood and like bore a hole in it with their teeth. And then they use their, like, super long, double-length middle finger, like a little skewer, and they stick it in the hole, and they grab bugs out with it. 
dang. So it's a whole setup. Like they're 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 rigged. They're like a multi-tool. It's great, but like, at what cost of the creepy middle finger? It's true. It's true. It's so creepy. Exactly. It's like your feet. At what cost? (laughs) But if you ever was wondering what Austin looks like, just Google cuckoo or just Google uh, eye eyes, and that's what he looks like. Yeah, that's me. Yes, you got me. Um, I was gonna say my favorite uh, tree critter is a kookaburra. Because those oh, are the cutest little birds in the world. They're so cute. Have you ever seen Tawny Frogmouths? Yes, oh, yes, those two. Yeah, those two. They're sure. when they're babies, they're the funniest looking things no, on this planet. I, I don't know. A baby great horned owl looks like a muppet, oh, and I love my God. They do horn. look like a muppet, and they think they're so scary. You like yeah. open, yeah, head thing back and forth, and, like acting all tough. Nah. and you're no. like, you are a cotton ball with a face. I can't. <laughs> like, you're not, you're not scary. I'm so sorry. I know you really want to be, but you're not. I'm well, so sorry. And and this could be this could be a question. I think I've asked Zach this before from a, a trapping perspective. But I'll yeah, ask both yeah. Bridget and 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 Zach, um, what's your least favorite animal to work with? <laughs> Chihuahuas. <laughs> <laughs> so you work with lions, rhinoceros, or rhinoceri. I don't know what it would mm-hmm. be. All these other. these animals these animals that could kill you yeah and yet it is still a chihuahua chihuahuas are so scary they're because they come in and they're like trembling and they're so small you're like all right this won't be so bad right and then you go to like reach down to say hi and they move so fast they (laughs) whip around and they act like they're gonna eat you i mean i so if you walk up to any vet ever and ask them what their least favorite animal to work with is. If it's not cats, it's chihuahuas. That's insane. Why yeah. do little dogs gotta shake so much? Fifty percent. So fifty percent. Fifty percent tremble. Fifty percent attack. That's I saw that the other day, and I was like, "That's a true fact. It's true." I, it makes it hard too, because like when you walk in with a like not walk in but if you walk to go work with a lion or a tiger you're kind of in that mentality of like okay this can definitely kill me i need to be really really careful and precautions are taken where you know you sedate them really really well or they're in protected contact so you don't have to like be in the same space as them you don't get protected contact with the chihuahua you're like thrown in the room (laughs) you're locked in it's a and you're like shoot and then you got to do blood draws and stuff and they're awake and they're probably screaming and there are disclaimer there are nice chihuahuas i have met <laughs> nice chihuahuas and ever most animals that come to the vet are not in their normal state of mind when i see them they're yeah. usually pretty cranky and pretty scared very speciesist of you Bridget. i know, I know. Oh I know so like i can't make a disclaimer on all chihuahuas but i get more nervous about chihuahuas than a lot of other animals jesus yeah. and, and so you know, hopefully, and, and maybe to close this out here. Yeah, yeah. And, and there's there's a lot of, and I see in the news and on all sorts of different stuff, people talk about, you know, the uh, the bad aspects of zoos and these, you know, these uh, these creatures are in cages. This they're animal prison. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I want, and you know, those in the field understand the, the benefits of both zoos and rehabilitation centers. And I, I would hope that you I, I would like you to touch on just, uh, you know, some of the great benefits and you've touched on it a little bit already, but some of the benefits that 
these zoos provide to to uh, ecosystems? Yeah. So one of the my my favorite benefit of zoos for ecosystems is something we already talked about. Animals and zoos give us a really unique opportunity to do research for not just, you know, zoo animals, but populations or an entire species. We're able to find things out and to do things with animals and zoos that we cannot do to animals in the wild. You can't, we have a rhino that will stand for blood draws once a week if you wanted her to. And we were doing that when she was pregnant and we have blood from almost every single week of her 16 month pregnancy that we can look at and we can see how the blood is changing. And maybe we can use that in a wild rhino. And that's something we could never do with a wild rhino, especially the same wild rhino every single time and have them be happy and healthy at the end of it, you know? And so that's, I think the biggest is animals and zoos help us learn more about the wild populations that we do have and that we are trying to protect. Um, I'm a huge, I'm a living example of what zoos can do for somebody. I started zoo school in kindergarten and now I'm going into the zoo profession to try and make it better. Zoos give us a really amazing education opportunity for little kids, adults. It doesn't matter what age you are, where you're from, what you're doing. It's always more exciting to go see a tiger in real life than it is to read about a tiger in a book. And that leads into another huge benefit of zoos is somebody explained it to me once, like zoos are a time capsule. We don't have these animals necessarily anymore because all we want from them is an entertainment value that is an aspect of zoos and that is something that a lot of people do enjoy and that a lot of people don't enjoy and i personally see both sides of the argument obviously it's more appealing to see a tiger out in the wild in its natural habitat where it can do its thing but unfortunately for tigers and a lot of other species that's not a reality of the environment that we're in right now if they were all out in the wild they could be poached. They are, they are losing their land every day for humans kind of moving on to it from climate change, from things like that. And so by having some of these animals in zoos, we are able to preserve a species and preserve a population and their genetics so that hopefully someday we can have a breeding program that we can put them back out into the wild when their habitat is ready for them. And so zoos kind of in that aspect act like a time capsule. And that's something that I find really, really cool and really important for a lot of species. Yeah, that, that being said too, like you can always that uh, everybody always like goes to a zoo and says something like, "Oh well, it's just sad to watch them all just walk circles in their cage or whatever." Now, hopefully, shed, this interview shed some insight that like those animals had a full day of work, or you know, they went through a week yeah. of like work. Like they're they have to get put through a lot, and the zookeepers and everybody involved gets put through a lot. So the 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 you going out there and seeing them is just kind of an added bonus to it. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, there there are definitely, definitely bad zoos out there. I mean, there are bad restaurants. There are bad, you know, there's something bad about every profession. There are bad zoos. And there are zoos that keep animals in subpar conditions. And that's really, really sad. And that's why it's so important for people to go to AZA facilities and see kind of the gold standard. And if they're inspired enough, maybe they can go into the profession and try to make it better or speak out against it and not just condemn all zoos in general, but educate themselves more on the different types of zoos and try to find the ones that are worth supporting and try to reach out and help the ones that maybe aren't up to the standard right now. 
Yeah. yeah. And going off that too, sorry, Austin. No, um, I had two questions. Yeah. N- number one. Uh, so like what, how, what percentage or I guess I don't know how it all works, but is that part of your funding and stuff for all this research and whatnot comes from admission and like what, how much of that comes from there? That's a really good question. I'm sure it's dependent on the zoo and I don't, I don't know the answer for that. Um, but I know that AZA facilities do keep track of what research they're involved in and how much of their money goes to research and how many projects that that zoo is involved in. Even if the project isn't happening at their zoo, a lot of zoo studies that happen put out calls to other AZA facilities and ask like, hey, if you have extra blood samples, we're doing this study on a blood sample. Can we involve your animal? Can we get this population for our study bigger so that we get better results? Things like that. And so you can contribute to studies without having to do the study. And that's something that AZA really focuses on and looks at. And if there's a facility that could be doing more and they're just not, they look into that because they want everybody to contribute and to try to help figure out more about the animals that we're taking care of every day. Um, but that's a, that's, a, that's a pretty zoo-specific question based on where you are and what study it is and how it's happening. Sure. So they can use a lot and that uh, admission to come see the animals can't help a lot or it can just kind of be an added bonus to the funding that comes to them. Yeah. So the admission that you're paying when you go to zoos, obviously it's dependent on each zoo, but that's going, most of it is going towards the animal. Um, We're at least maintaining facilities that keep the animals, you know? Well, well, I was going to say is in, in, in what, uh, at least with the care facilities that I've uh, worked closely with is a lot of that admission goes back into uh, the operational costs which includes salaries for zookeepers and for vets and everything else. So with that being said, is that, you know, by supporting the zoo, by going there or donating um, or becoming a member of the, I know the AZA has a membership program where you can become a member and donate um, that helps fund salaries to get more zookeepers, to get more veterinarians, to get, uh, you know, better care for those animals. Yeah. And like I said, I can't, I can't say for sure because every zoo is so different and I don't know the ins and outs of zoo fundraising. It's not something I've ever done. Um, hopefully I don't have to do because I'm sure it's super complicated, but, um, yeah, the, the admission money, it doesn't just go to line the pockets of professionals in the zoo field. The zoo field is not a super lucrative area to go into, you know, there's just like every other natural resources. Yeah. You're not going to be a millionaire. Welcome um, to being poor. Exactly. Natural exactly. Resources. <laughs> yeah. um, so a lot of, a lot of those costs do go right back to the zoo and the zoo, good zoos are there to keep their animals healthy and to help populations in the wild. You know, it's some of the pillars of AZA facilities. Um, it's what's really important and it should be one of the major, major focuses of a zoo is to not only keep the animals that you can see healthy and um, in good conditions, but to try to contribute back and help every tiger, every rhino, you know, to do more than just that individual animal. Yeah. And I got one more question for you. Yes, go for it. How do these zoos get rhinos and giraffes? when does the transportation happen where do they come from like just simple yeah. stuff like that i'm dying to know yeah, that is yeah, a yeah. great question i never <laughs> that thought is about a good that question that is a good question so when zoo started um they got their start as menageries which was basically come look at my hallway of animal cages and all my super super cool stuff 
that this guy in a boat stole from Africa. You know, this guy in a boat found it on an island off gang, the coast gang. of Florida. <laughs> exactly. So back in the day, way, way, way long ago, these animals, clearly they were taken from the wild. Nobody bred a giraffe in captivity and had the first giraffe, you know. They were wild-caught species. They were brought into captivity. Um, a lot of them did not have the greatest conditions. And if you kind of look back and see, like, how zoos got their start and look at old photos and then look at exhibits now, you can see how progressive of a field zoo med and zoo care has become and how much has changed. And even year to year, if you look at how things are changing and evolving, people are really working hard to try to figure this, everything out for every species and to really do their best for them. Um, so in the past, a lot of animals were wild caught. Nowadays, it's actually really rare to find wild caught animals, at least when they're bigger species. So all, if not most of like the giraffes and the rhinos and the lions and the tigers that we're seeing, those were bred in captivity animals. Um, very rarely are animals taken out of the wild anymore to be put into zoos. Some of the only instances for that would be if it was an animal that was found and needed to be rehabbed and had an injury that was not, that did not allow it to be released back to the wild. Um, so like if you go to zoos and you see, if you go to an American zoo and you see a bald eagle, if you look at them long enough, you'll probably see like, oh, it's missing a wing or one of its eyes is kind of weird looking or its beak isn't all there. You know, it's missing a piece. So things like that yeah. or that that animal was found by somebody and was brought in to be rehabbed and wasn't allowed to be released back into the wild. It just wasn't going to do well. So now it's in a zoo facility. So that's one instance um, with black footed ferrets. You find an, a species that is in dire need of help and dire need of saving. And you pull all of those individuals out of the wild and put them in a breeding program, hopefully for reintroduction. That's happened. Um, some of the smaller species um, can come from the wild still. Some fish can come from the wild still. It's really dependent on species, but a lot of the bigger ones that you're going to see are all captive bred from so other facilities. So you'd say that like these big megafauna have generations of zoo breeding then in their, in their timeline. Okay. Yep. And for almost probably almost, if not all of the big megafauna that you see, um, if you go to look at their SSP records, the SSPs can show you generations upon generations of these animals and where they were and who they, who bred them and who their parents were and everything like that. So record keeping has become a really big part of keeping these species and their genetics safe um, and just tracking everything that we possibly can. Yeah, no, I, I know even at uh, Brookfield Zoo, which was, you know, my zoo for many years. Yeah, um, Brookfield's amazing. Yeah, it's a cool zoo. Um, but uh, especially in their, I think it's called like, uh, what is it, the ape house there is you'll read mm -hmm. the little things and they have like three generations of gorillas there, you yeah. know, that are all, were all bred at Brookfield Zoo. Yeah, know, it seems have, like every year they have uh, a gorilla that has a baby with it now. Yeah, and there will mm -hmm. be three generations of gorillas in the in the same enclosure. And then, uh, and then you walk through that ape house, and then you come out sixteen pounds lighter because it's so hot and humid. <laughs> I I just want to know anecdote, quick story. I hate I, I I'm, <laughs> I'm not I of all the animals I'm like uh, fearful of. I'm not a huge fan of primates. They're okay, a little, yeah. they're a little bit too human for me, and it, <laughs> it freaks me out. And uh, that is my nightmare: is <laughs> is the ape exhibit at the Brookfield Zoo because they you they could crawl above you and stuff like yeah, get at yeah. 
Yeah, yeah so like... I, when I was an intern, I was actually a primate keeper intern. Oh. Um, so after, <laughs> I spent a lot of time with primates and I actually really, really learned, I learned to love them a lot. Oh. Even if sometimes they spit water at your face or like, well, it, try to take things from you. Well, you can spit it back in their face. That's what I heard. Oh, right? God, Sir I would not. I would not. You catch no. it in, the, in your mouth. <laughs> no, the best plan of action is just to walk away and try not to cry. Yeah, I'm, <laughs> too, I'm too ignorant to work with monkeys. Well, then yeah. I gotta say something and just give them, oh, just no. give them a chew. <laughs> well, well, and, yeah. Uh, and I guess, uh, you know, uh, I don't want to take up too much of your time here, Bridget. I know you probably okay. got to study, but um, <laughs> is uh, what if you could give us one anecdote to clo- close out here? What's one funny or interesting story you got from zookeeping? Your, your go to story. Oh, man. OK, so if you go to Henry Violet Zoo in Madison, Wisconsin, and you go to the children's zoo, there's a big green barn. And if you go to the I've Red Panda barn. exhibit, it's a cool barn. Yeah. If you go to the Red Panda exhibit and look in the window for the indoor exhibit, there's a branch that goes across the top, and that branch has, like, a little, like, it's a fake log. So it's, like, concrete, right? And it has a little, like, piece that hangs off of it that's supposed to be, like, a branching of a tree. And if you look really closely, you'll notice that there's, like, no paint left on it. And it's because I smoked my face on it like three times a day, every day for two summers. That's it's not where so, you want to be. It's knocked unconscious with a bunch of red pandas. I mean, they're, and you know, they're they non-carnivorous. Watched me do it. They they're, watched me do it every day, and they probably thought I was so dumb. Well, they're, they're non-carnivorous, but I feel like once they get the taste of human meat, that could change. I, I mean, that green barn's yeah. gonna run blood red. <laughs> But my my actual piece of advice for zoo people, that's just a fun, like, go see if you can find my branch that doesn't <laughs> have paint on it anymore, um, is, you know, every zoo you walk into is not going to be your favorite. Every exhibit is not going to be the most beautiful exhibit you've ever seen. But try to keep in mind, even if it's not an ideal situation for every single animal and every single species that they're in captivity right now, Zoos are doing so much behind the scenes for these animals and for these species. And they're doing so much research and putting in so much time and effort to try to do what's best for these animals and their wild counterparts. And hopefully we can move to a future that we don't need zoos. and We don't need to have places where we can preserve the genetics of these species because they can be doing well out in the wild. But until then, zoos are going to be here trying to do their best to do what's right for these guys. Well... I think that's a great note to close out on here. And uh, Bridget, I just want to say, you know, really thank you. You've been a a wealth of information here. Um, Yeah, no, that was awesome. That was, uh, yeah, I think think you gave a lot of insight on uh, zoos and the day-to-day operations. And I'm going to speak myself here. I mean, I learned a lot. Um, awesome. and, and I would, I think I would love to have you back on here again at some point. Um, yeah, absolutely. You yeah. just let me know. I'll try yeah. to do something dumb. So I have more good stories. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Yeah. yeah, that was sure. awesome. yeah. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. yeah, absolutely. All right. Yeah. Well, well, that was our, that was our interview with Bridget here and, uh, we hope everyone learned a lot. Uh, <clears throat> Zach, we'll cut into our, our last and final segment here. 
Uh, we got hot gear, cold beer. What do you got for me? So what is your hot gear, cold beer? My hot gear is for sure the Gerber multi-tool. If you go to a zoo and you see a zookeeper, chances are their belt looks like Batman. At least that's what <laughs> I like. I, I thought that about myself. I look at my all khaki outfit and I was like, <laughs> I look kind of cool right now. <laughs> and so they're really so cool. Cat, it's not Batman, you're cack man. <laughs> <laughs> I'll I'll go with Cac Man. I'm sure I'll adopt that for sure. Um, but the Gerber Multi Tool, it hangs. It ha- comes with like this convenient little carrying case. You strap it on your belt. You look like Batman. And every zookeeper has a good multi tool that I've ever met. They love them, and it's fantastic. And my cold beer is for sure the Spotted Cow oh, from New Glarus. Gang, classic. gang, classic Wisconsin. Spoken like a true Wisconsinite, right there. <laughs> Absolutely. But- uh, we got hot gear, cold beer. What do you got for me? Boy, uh, well, for beer, I'll tell you which one to never, ever buy in your whole life. And it's these stupid Bud Light seltzers because <laughs> they are booty. <laughs> Absolute booty. Booty sweat? Is that what you're drinking? Oh, yeah. It's straight <laughs> booty sweat with tonic water mixed in it. Oh, God. That is rough. Yeah. But, um, Boy, for hot gear, hmm, I really honestly didn't think of this one for. <laughs> Come oh, on, okay. Zach. You're I killing one, Yeah, I got one. Uh, for hot gear, I'll go with, I just got a fleshing knife for scraping furs out to uh, stretch them and tan them. It is the 8-inch. Uh, the Weeby 8, W-I-E-B-E. We be, we be trilling. We be 8. We be, yeah, we be scraping furs. <laughs> um, just an awesome little knife. I really, I didn't know how much I'd like the little ones, but those ones are a lot easier to work with because my uh, flesh and beam, I'm still only getting, you know, a couple inches of contact because it's just a round beam that I'm scraping. Yeah. So, uh Really cool, really nice knife. I got a coon done the other day in, I don't know, less than an hour. And it was my first coon I've ever done. So real easy to work with. And then put it on the board and it's still drying right now. And hopefully I'll be tanning by next week. Nice. Yeah, that's good. Um, I think for me, uh, because I am doing sober January like an idiot. Um, so I will say my favorite non-alcoholic beverage at the current time, and that is God's gift to juices, all hail be to Minute Maid Berry Punch. You <laughs> well, know. Shout out Minute Maid, sponsor us. <laughs> oh my God. If that thing lasts more than 24 hours in your fridge, you ain't doing it right. Oh my God. Is that the one in the carton? Yes. yes. Oh my <laughs> God. If that thing isn't half drank by the time you get home, then you've obviously never had it because it is the best thing ever. <laughs> it's in the, the, I guess you would call it the magenta gallon jug. Not yeah. the fruit punch, the berry punch. Yep. Yeet. <laughs> Dear God. And you know, every time I pour it, I do the classic juice pour where you fill up the cup to the brim. You drink half of it while you're standing there, and then you go, okay, I got to refill it back up before you walk up to your room or in front of the TV. Yep, so you need to buy a case <laughs> of cartons. 
<laughs> just to get you through, jump. just to get you through a week. Oh yeah. Oh, stuff is unreal. It's crack. It's crack and liquid form. But yeah. yeah, so that that is my cold beer is Minute Maid Fruit Punch. It's it's the best. Um, but Zach, we'll close out here. We got to get a, a gear. Oh, my gear. Yes. Uh, yeah. So that would be my Mr. Buddy heater. Uh, the small one. We were, I know Zach and I had a conversation before this, but uh, the one gallon tanks, they do, or the one pound tanks, uh, they do burn a little quick, but uh, that thing puts off some heat. It's super lightweight and it's super easy to start and it hasn't let me down yet. And I've been using it like almost every day working in my garage and uh, yeah, it's been excellent. That's a little sunflower one, right? No, no, no. That's the, uh, I mean, it's the red one with the handle, you know, so the thing, the one pound tank screws into it. It's got the cage on the, side? On the front. Yeah, it's cruising on the side. And then, oh, you got you know, the got... so the medium one then. Is that the medium one? Okay, yeah, then the medium one. It's so the little one's it's... just that round, round unit that heats up. Okay, so I guess this is the medium one. It doesn't have the blower on it, but yeah. So yeah, it's, it's excellent. It's it's awesome. Oh, uh, you can cut this out, but Bass Pro does those giveaways. You know, like get a yeah. free knife and shit. Yeah. They were giving away big buddies with the one with the fan on them. Once. Oh, God. Those are like 190 bucks. Yeah. And if Greg was out of town, but our other buddy went up there and he just got one because they were just a giveaway. Holy shit. I would shit my pants. Yeah. Those things are freaking nuts. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I would definitely. I would be. I would, I'd punch an old lady. Yeah. Um, I'd, I'd be coming in wearing disguises. <laughs> throw a mustache on one day or oh, one yeah. time and then just go right to the back of the line that closes out week 10 of the between two pines podcast just want to remind everybody to follow us on social media at uh on instagram we are at between two pines pod uh we do not have a facebook we're going to get that up and running uh, and then we can be found on any major provider uh of podcasts follow us let us know how we're doing Leave comments, send us direct messages, and if you are a professional in the field, please hit us up and uh, we'll interview you on the show. Thanks again. See you next week.